Hello, and welcome to Jetavanarama Buddhist Monastery. We continue our series of talks titled The Buddha's Guide to Happiness. You know by now what this is all about. You've been with us right from the start. There may be some among you who joined us along the way, and you're welcome as well. But whether you started right at the beginning, or somewhere in the middle, or perhaps even just today is your first session with us, you're all here for one thing. The same thing that we are wherever we are. The same reason that we wake up every morning, work hard, try hard, expend energy, study, start a business, try and earn as much money as we possibly can, pursue our goals, our dreams, get married, have children, go out for dinner, go to the park, walk the dog, spend time with our friends and our families. And when all is said and done, go to bed at night. Whilst all these things may look and seem very different from each other, so much so that when someone gets bored of doing the same thing for a period of time, usually they switch tasks, don't they? Like, for instance, if you're tired of studying or doing your chores at home, you might decide to take a break and speak to a friend, call a friend, or maybe watch some TV, listen to some music, play a game of chess, or maybe a guitar. You may engage in a hobby. Just do something for fun. And although it may seem that there are some things you do for fun and others you do because you have to do them, provided that you do all of them with a purpose, if you just take out the activities and consider the purpose behind all of this, you will agree with me that that purpose is unitary. It's the same thing over and over again. We do everything we do in the name of happiness because we want to be happy. Because we try to be happy. We like to be happy. In every moment of our lives, we like to be happy. We like to help other people to be happy. Some, in their attempt to be happy, do take away other people's happiness. This is not good. But any effort to make ourselves happy and to help other people achieve happiness is always good. There's nothing wrong with that. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. 
There's nothing wrong with trying hard, striving for it, going the extra mile if it's needed, working extra hours, staying up at night, burning the midnight oil if it comes to that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all perfectly fine. But there is something that I, we, the Buddha, two and a half thousand years ago, spotted that he thought was something fundamentally wrong in our approach to happiness. He did not deny that we all humans have a right to be happy. He even encouraged it. He said that was what we all needed to achieve. But what he realized was that the way we went about it was wrong. He gave us evidence of that. He asked us the question, if what you're doing makes you happy, how come you have to keep on doing it to be happy? In other words, what he made us think, or what he helped us realize, was that although we do the things we do in the name of happiness, none of these things really give us a permanent happiness. They're very transient, very temporary, very short-lived. And by virtue of that, what that meant was, we had to keep on doing it. So again, ultimately, there would be no end. So if you have to keep on doing something, and it, it is only for as long as you do it, you can achieve the results, you can achieve what you want, and the moment you stop doing it, then you're back to square one, then the long and the short of it is, it has not really gotten us where we want to go, where we want to be, and what we want to achieve. It's only a very momentary thing. Not ours to keep, just ours to keep striving for. So, having realized the errors in our ways, he taught us that there was a way to achieve ultimate happiness. By ultimate what he meant was, there was a happiness that could be achieved, that once achieved, you wouldn't have to keep on doing something to remain in that state of happiness. So, that was a groundbreaking moment for all sentient beings. Because no one ever knew, no one had ever heard of something like that a way to be happy without having to try to be happy, a happiness that could be once achieved and forever experienced, that was unheard of until then. And then once that was realized, that was his moment of awakening. And ever since, we have referred to him as the fully awakened one. That moment of enlightenment, that realization, he then spent 45 long years of his life preaching, 
teaching, sharing with every man, woman and child and every other sentient being who had the wisdom, who had the intellect, who had the capacity to learn, to understand, to comprehend what he had to share. Tirelessly and relentlessly, he went from land to land, most of the time on barefoot, most of the time all by himself, because he discouraged many monks to travel the same direction because he said that way you would not be able to benefit a multitude of innocent and helpless people. When he first discharged his community of followers, the Sangha, the monks, the likes of myself who were there back then, his instruction was Charata Bhikkave, Charikan, Bahujana Hitaya, Bahujana Sukhaya, in his words, by which he meant, Go forth, my monks. Share this teaching with as many as you possibly can to benefit as many as you possibly can. And so from that day on, we have carried his teaching with us. So we represent the Buddha and his teaching. And to this day, as our forefathers, the disciples of the Lord Buddha, have done, and as my teachers have done, who, thanks to my own merits and their good grace, were ever so kind enough to pass on that gift to me, allow me to go forth, to don robes, to live behind a lay life and embrace a life of purity, a life that is dedicated to achieving both my happiness and sharing this method, this path of achieving ultimate happiness with all, with everyone else and with you. Thanks to all of them, today we continue to do that very thing. So this is why at the beginning of every talk we take a moment to reflect on our great elders, those who were there before us, those who did the very same as us but before us, and taught us that this is the livelihood that is worth living because this livelihood enables us, pushes us forward to achieving an ultimate goal, an ultimate bliss. Again, ultimate because once you've done it, you've done it. You don't have to keep working for it. You don't have to keep striving for it. It's yours to keep. You don't have to do anything to keep it once achieved. You know there are very few things like that. With almost every other thing, every other achievement, every other goal you can imagine, once you achieve it, you have to keep working at it, to maintain it to keep it, whether it is a 
title, a rank, a job, whatever, perhaps an academic qualification. Most things can be revoked, rescinded, taken back, denied, rejected. So you have to maintain either a behavior or a decorum or some other social standing to maintain that. So unlike that, there is one thing in this world which if you do, it's yours to keep. No one can ever take it away from you. Nothing can ever take it from you. It's yours to keep forever. And that is the ultimate happiness that the Buddha taught us. And it is this path that we are walking along, treading forward in the hope of achieving it for ourselves. So before we take another step forward today on that path, let us all take a moment to pay homage to the Buddha, to our teachers, to the great elders, our forefathers. Because it is their sublime and most graceful and most merciful intention to help us all achieve the very same that they did that has helped us come this far. So let us now take a moment to do just that. Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasse Last week We talked about something that was, I thought, very relevant to a lot of people. Because we discussed the topic of showing love, affection, caring about others, and how it fits with Buddhist philosophy, whether they are mutually exclusive, can you be a good Buddhist and can you be someone who cares about others at the same time or are they mutually exclusive? Can you only be either one of them, a good Buddhist? someone who is a good practitioner of Buddhist philosophy, but not someone who cares about others, someone who is affectionate about others. So we talked about this last week. We talked about this because I think there comes a point in your practice of Buddhist philosophy where you'll begin to ask some of these questions of yourself and perhaps if you were here 
someday than from Bhante. And I was also quite pleased that we talked about it because I think following the talk and its broadcast, several questions had come through from our listeners who had tried to understand the relevance between Buddhist philosophy and our duty of care and some who may have might have struggled to tally the two and work out how they fit with each other. So I've got a couple of those questions and I thought it may be useful to talk through some of them and help you make sense of all of that. One of the questions goes, is the end goal that of becoming an arahant to be like an emotionless robot that just does the duties or tasks? So I'll repeat that. Is the end goal, I'll paraphrase that, is the end goal of becoming an arahant to be like an emotionless robot that just does duties or tasks. There was another question that was similar oh, uh, and they've said, I, I've had this question for a long time. I'm not sure how one can show real affection and other emotions which elicit warmth of the heart, something which could be a reasonable expectation from a loved one, a family, friend, and yet not differentiate one living being from the other in terms of depth, so not depth, in terms of depth or quality of connection. I would be really grateful if I could have some clarity on this. So, really good questions. Because why are they really good questions? Now, this is important to understand as well. I know a really good question when I see one because that question tells me that you have taken what you have heard, what you have learned from these talks into, into what? Into the three words I keep banging on about all the time. What is it? Into the? lab of life, that's right, into the lab of life. Because it is when you take these principles into the lab of life, you will start to come up with very poignant, very pertinent, very relevant questions that are in fact related to your practice and that are in fact questions which seeking answers will help propel you forward on your journey. Because unless you take this principles into the lab of life, you will not have such questions. Other questions which come through a pure academic study will simply be those that are out of curiosity. And 
not so much of great relevance to your practice, to your practice of the path, and therefore not all that relevant to achieving our ultimate goal. I say this because it is something that my teachers have instilled, they have implanted this into my mind. They've always said, if ever you have a question, do make sure, do be certain that this question is relevant to the ultimate goal. Because unless it is relevant to our ultimate goal, your question is simply a question and plenty of such questions have been asked in the past. Some may have been answered, some may have been left unanswered, but please don't bother me with such questions. And I do respect my teachers for having inculcated in my mind that principle when it comes to asking questions. And I encourage you to do the same. Whenever a question is asked, whenever you feel the need to ask a question, it's, it makes sense and it makes sense for both of us, both you and myself, to give it some thought and to think if that question is indeed relevant to the practice of the path and to your ultimate happiness. If one is purely and simply for the sake of curiosity, well, you know, satisfying curiosities doesn't really get us anywhere. We've done enough of that. That is not the path to ultimate happiness. And what, we are, what, we, what are we all here for? Just one thing. That is our ultimate happiness. So, let's try and make sense of what we discussed last week. And in doing so, attempt to get some answers that will help our listeners who have asked and put forward these questions. Now, I want to go about this in perhaps... I want to turn this question on its head. Let's go back to the first question, which says, is the end goal of becoming an arahant to be like an emotionless robot that just, that just does the duties or tasks assigned to them or expected of them? You see, instead of us trying to figure out what an arahant is like. My recommendation is always to try and understand what you are like. And I don't mean this in a disrespectful manner. You know, it's not like a go find, figure out who you are like. You know, I don't mean it in that, in that sense. I mean this genuinely and from the bottom of my heart, I, 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 I feel that that is a better question to be asking. And there's a reason for that. You see, to envisage what an arahant is like is almost an impossible task until you become one. Because an arahant is someone who is very different to other sentient beings. The way they think is entirely different. Their mindset is completely different. Their approach to things is very different to that of others. And that is for one reason and one reason alone. 
It is because they are free of attachment. Completely. Entirely. 100%. That makes a world of a difference, folks. Because for as long as there is attachment in our minds, there is a side effect of that. And that is, we are always interested in self-preservation. In what things mean to us, to myself, how they might affect me. You see, if you remember, we've discussed this example one or two times in these talks. You know, even if it comes to giving something you have to someone who doesn't, let's say a poor man, a beggar, a street beggar, you give them some money, or you give them some food, Usually, people expect something in return, even from a beggar. You think, no? Try it next time. When you give something to someone, even if it's a beggar, usually people expect some kind of reciprocation. It could be a simple thank you. It could be a smile some sign of gratitude. Try this out for yourself. Next time you set out, have something ready to hand out to a beggar, and in that moment when you actually give it to him or her, it could be some money, could be some some spare change or maybe some food, maybe a drink, maybe a cup of coffee. Genuinely and honestly ask yourself, as you give it, as you hand it over, ask yourself, are you absolutely certain you're expecting nothing in return? Do you not look at his face to check that he's grateful to you for having given it to him? Are you looking for that smile? Even if it's a faint smile. Do you try and read his facial reactions? Are you looking at his body language to gauge whether he's grateful to you for your help? Are you studying his body language to gauge whether he's grateful for your charity? Are you looking for a thank you? Have you got your ears open, listening out for those words, you know, right till the end of that interaction? And if at the end of it you get absolutely nothing, how would that make you feel? Now, the thing is this though, it's very difficult to do this experiment in real life because almost all of the time, all people who receive something from someone else do show their gratitude. So it's very difficult to gauge whether how you might feel if there was no reciprocation. Having said that, there is one way you could check it though, even without faking this experiment. Do you recall how we understood pleasure? What was the principle? What was the, the formula of pleasure? To experience pleasure, one must first have an expectation an attachment, and that gives rise to 
wanting something, which immediately creates a vexation in the mind, and then when that which is wanted, that which is desired is received, there's a relief of vexation. That relief of vexation is what you experience as pleasure. You remember this. So, whenever we experience pleasure, what does that tell us? So you can reverse engineer this. right? When you understand the makings of pleasure, what is the formula, what is the process that brings pleasure about, that gives rise to pleasure, whenever there is pleasure, you can work your way back, reverse engineer, and find out what were the preconditions? What was there before pleasure coming into being? So, if there has to be vexation, whose relief gives us pleasure, then we know that wherever we experience pleasure, there was a vexation beforehand. No pain, no gain. Remember? And if there was a vexation, then we know that prior to that, there was a wanting. And if there was a wanting, we know that prior to that there was an attachment, an expectation. Now, if there was an expectation, if there was an attachment, then it's impossible to say that that experience of pleasure was pure. Pure in what sense? I don't mean it was bad or evil. You know, pleasure is never pure. Because it's always based in attachment, based in expectation, based in a desire to satisfy oneself. I'm not saying that this is evil or vicious or anything like that. I'm just saying this is the way it is. It's not bad. I don't mean it that way. I'm not trying to say that this is bad and you know, we're all so terrible beings for wanting to experience pleasure. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying this is not about good or bad, in fact. This is about Here's what's going on in our minds. My intention is simply to share with you, to enlighten you about what's going on, the science behind the workings of your mind, and then ask you one simple question. Are you okay with that? If you know that whenever you experience pleasure, there was a pain beforehand, there was a vexation, there was suffering beforehand, my question is not about the pleasure, my question is about are you okay with the fact that you had to suffer? There was pain, there was vexation before that pleasure. You can't be okay with that, surely. No one in their sane mind is going to put their hand up and say, I don't mind pain. Because the amount of pleasure that you experience is directly proportional to the amount of suffering that you had to put yourself through, that you had to endure beforehand and we've discussed plenty of examples to get this idea into our minds and through our heads and you know this so whenever we practice charity whenever we give something and this is why I say you know do try it out but I, I really like this I, like, I really like for you to go and do this as a, a field experiment next time you find yourself on the streets and you see a beggar or someone who needs a helping hand, someone who needs something, someone who's needy, and you've got something that you can help them with. 
Even if you don't normally do it, I'm just saying, you know, do it as an experiment. If you're not the kind of person who generally gives a dollar or two to someone, you know, one or two quid to a beggar, then I'm just saying, you know, if it's, if it's possible, if you find yourself in that situation, then go ahead and do it and see if your action is pure in its purest form. Now this is a very subtle idea that I'm trying to introduce you to. It is very subtle because uh, what I don't want you to feel is that charity is a bad thing. You know, charity is such a good thing. It's a, it's a tremendously good thing. I practice it every day. I do it every day. What I'm doing right now is charity. I'm giving something that I have to those who are needy of it. So I do it every day. And I encourage you to do it every day. Even the Buddha did. On one occasion he was found to say to his monks, monks fear not to do good deeds. Fear not to practice charity. Because when you practice charity you will earn good merits. You will earn wholesome merits. Very very much like the merits that we transfer at the end of this talk and every talk. You will earn lots of good merit that will help you progress on the path to achieving ultimate happiness. And the reason for that is what you give is what you get. We'll talk about these in future talks as well. There are some very beautiful, very, very interesting and very important teachings in Buddhist philosophy which, some of which can also be found in other teachings, other religions. Like charity is featured in, across, across the board, isn't it? Almost every religious leader, almost every philosophy talks about charity. And Buddhism is no different in that sense. So the Buddha talks about charity all of the time. Because he says, what you give is what you get. So if you help someone who need something that they don't have. Try that again. So if you help someone by giving them something they don't have and in doing so you enable them to be happy because you have done something to give them happiness something will happen for you that gives you happiness. And that happiness is not a bad thing. But happiness can be mundane. Happiness is not always Supramundane. What do I mean by supramundane? Ultimate happiness. A happiness that is not dependent on external factors, on conditions. So there's mundane happiness, there's supramundane happiness. Much like pleasure and happiness. So, please, I hope you do understand. What I don't mean that pleasure is dirty, it's bad, it's evil. What's bad and evil are unwholesome deeds. It's when you seek pleasure by hurting others, by harming others, by doing evil deeds, the ten unmeritorious deeds, taking someone's life, be that a human being or an animal. So killing, stealing, engaging in sensual misconduct, lying, slander, harsh speech, things like that. There are ten of them that the Buddha prescribed. 
We'll talk about them as well in, at some point in the future. So these unmeritorious deeds, those things you must never do. They will also bring you happiness, but that happiness is very short-lived. And because you've given unhappiness, in fact, because you've stolen someone else's happiness in doing them, what you give is what you get, and therefore, at some point in the future, your happiness will also be stolen away from you. Your happiness will also be stolen from you. Depriving you of achieving ultimate happiness for, a, for an incredibly long time. I'll show you the science behind this, the logic, the reasoning behind this as we go forwards in our series of talks. The reason I talk about this in this very moment is because I want you to understand that charity is a good thing and pleasure is not always bad. Pleasure that is sought from doing good deeds is not something to be shunned away. It's fine. It's good. It's not great, but it's good. Because what is great is if you can do something for others and not expect even pleasure in return. Not because of what happens on their end, on the receiving end. It's because of what happens within you internally. Because to the other person, it makes no difference. So if you give a, 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 a dollar or two to a, say, a $10 bill to a beggar, whether you give it for pleasure or not, it makes no difference to the other party. So the beggar is the same $10. Makes no difference. So it's not about what happens on the outside that I'm concerned with. I'm talking about what happens on the inside. Because you could give it in one of two ways. In fact, you could give it one of three ways. One, you can do it unmeritoriously, angrily, with hatred. Like, take this and just get out of here. I hate you and never come back. Right? Don't ever come in front of me again. Don't ever let me have to see your face again. Just take this and get lost. Right? That is not charity, is it? You've given $10, but you've taken away his happiness. You erased the smile on their face. You, t you stole that man's happiness from his heart. But you've given him $10. So, is that not the same? I mean, you've given $10, take away his happiness, so who cares? I've given him $10. Can he go and eat happiness? To eat, he needs money, so I've given him money. Well, that can be said for people who believe that everything in this world is material. But it's not. What matters in this world is not pounds and dollars and rupees and cents and stuff like that. It's happiness that matters. Because why? Everything everyone does is in the name of happiness. We talked about this right at the beginning. So, giving him the $10 is fine. I mean, that is, yes, meritorious, ever so slightly, but you might have accrued a lot of demerit by taking away his happiness in doing so. So that's the, the one way of doing it. The second way of doing it would be, you're happy for him. And you're, you want happiness yourself. So it makes you happy when you see someone else happy. And that is such a good thing. So I encourage you to do it as much as you possibly can.
So you can give a $10 bill and say, hey, I think you must be hungry, right? Looks like you've had a long day. Here, take this, go and feed yourself and be happy. And I'm really happy that I've had the chance to offer this to you today. With a smile on your face, with both hands, you give it to him and you know, he takes it, thanks you, walks away and you're really happy about what you've done. That you've made, you've lightened someone's load. That's a second way of giving. That's good. You did experience pleasure because if you take it to the surgery table and open it up, what you'll understand is there was pleasure there. Yeah, there was pleasure there. You are happy to see him happy. You are happy to see his smile. You are happy to hear him say thank you. And that happiness is based in an expectation. The expectation of, I'm waiting to hear you say thank you. I need you to be happy. Because it might be that, that with that second way of giving, if in return he doesn't say thank you, or he says, I don't want your money. Who do you think I am? I'm no beggar. I don't want your money. You keep it. And Or if he might say, is that all you got? Ten dollars? Do you not have any more? Ten dollars? Is a pesky ten dollars? Is that all you can give me? Jeez. <laughs> it's probably what you'll say once he said that. Right? So that kind of response, if you elicit that kind of response from, that, from your giving, you, I, chances are you're not going to be a happy bunny. Yeah? Wouldn't you agree? Or if he says, takes that $10 and go, ah, useless, and throws it, chucks it away. How much you feel at that moment? You might feel, how ungrateful. Yeah? That's probably how you're going to feel. How ungrateful. He didn't have to do that. If he didn't want it, he could have just said, I didn't want it. Why did he have to throw it? Can you treat that man the same way you did a moment ago before he did that? Can you still smile at him and go, it's okay, sir. If you don't need it, I'll take it and I'll give it to somebody else. That's perfectly fine. I'm sorry if I upset you. I didn't mean to ruin your day. I'm terribly sorry this is all I've got today. But maybe tomorrow, if I have some more, I can give it to you. Would you feel ready and prepared to do, to do and say that? Not everyone would. I don't know about you, but I think chances are very slim someone would be able to do that. Why? Why? Ask yourself why. Why? Because in giving, you expected something in return. And when you didn't get that, there was a disappointment. So there was a vexation that went unfulfilled, and that was your disappointment. Meaning, that pleasure that charity, that good deed was tainted. And I use this word deliberately. That good deed was tainted with expectation, attachment. Now, there's a third type of giving. This is not easy to do. <laughs> I'll give you that. It's hard to do. It's hard to do because it requires that you are free of attachment. It requires that you are free of expectation and self-preservation. It requires that you give with absolutely nothing expected in return. Not even a thank you. Not even a smile of gratitude. 
if he chucks it back in your face, says, I don't want this, and even spits in your face, how dare you give me $10? Who do you think I am? You should still be able to say, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. I didn't mean to upset you. Pick up the $10 and apologize to him for having upset him and walk away and say, perhaps another day I can help you. Without resentment, though, this is not an act. You know, if you feel on the inside like, let me catch you some other time and I'll show you, I'll teach you a lesson. But, you know, we're in the middle of the street right now, so, you know, I don't, wanna, I don't want anyone to be thinking that I'm a terrible person. That I, you know, I don't want anyone to see me hitting a beggar or kicking him up the backside. But let me catch you in a dark place and I'm, I'm going to show you, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Right? So you can't be feeling any, any resentment. Your heart should be as pure as it was before you, you, ha you heard those words from, the, words from the beggar. If you're able to give like that, now that is the unblemished, purest form of giving. It's very difficult to achieve that state of perfection, that state of, that state of untarnished, unshakable mentality. But it's possible. I'm not, it's not impossible. It's possible. It's certainly possible. And we are on the path to that. You know, an arahant is someone like that. An arahant can give expecting absolutely nothing in return. So, I pose to you the question. These questions that have come through, you know, what is the end goal of becoming an arahant and is it to become an emotionless robot that just goes through you know the run of the mill I pose to you the question instead of trying to understand an arahant would it not be better to try and understand ourselves now yes you might say well Bhante do we not need to understand the end goal before we start working to that and you might have said that yourself in one of these talks. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. For right now, right, because this is a journey, right? We are, we, are, we are taking one step at a time. And I'll, I'll help you figure all this out. And I'm ever so grateful for the questions, but I'll, I'll help you figure this out along the way. Right now, I just want you to understand an arahant as someone who is free of expectations. Their charity is in, in its purest form. They can give, they can show affection, they can care, they can give warmth, but with expecting absolutely nothing in return. And if you don't expect anything in return, then have a think about this. It matters not who the other person is, right? Because you see, the second question there, it talked about when we show affection, you know, real affection is the word that was used in the question, and other emotions, how can we not differentiate between two human beings, between two living beings? Can you show affection to, say, your mother the same way you could do to a stranger? 
can you have a duty of care towards, say, your sibling the same way as you would to a stranger? Is there absolutely no difference? Is that even possible that you could treat them both the same? I need you to ask yourself the question, why is it that we show affection in the ways that we do to people in different ways? So in other words, why do we show affection to a loved one, say a partner, in a different way to how we might show affection to a stranger? Now, I need you to think about this outside the, you know, the social sort of uh, expectations. You know, there are, of course, you know, you, you wouldn't go and hold someone's hand as you're walking down the street in the same way that you would your, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Right? That would be <laughs> a grievous mistake. You know, you, you don't do that because it's just not done. It's not the right thing to do in, in, in civil society. And I'm not encouraging you to do it either. Right? But what I'm saying is, I'm talking about an internal, internally how you feel about them. Think about why we show a great deal of affection and the way we do so to some people and not so much to others. Say your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your, your partner, right? You get them flowers. Why do you do that for them and you don't do it for a stranger? Think about this. I don't want you to jump to answers. I want you to take some time and think about it. Even if it takes you the entire week, I'd like you to take your time and think about it. Why? Why do we try and make them happy and not try and make strangers happy? I'll give you one reason, and I'll agree with this, no doubts there, because they don't expect that from us. Fair dues. Strangers don't expect them to, you to walk up to them and you know, give them a box of chocolates. Some people do that, but you know, it's not expected. Uh, you don't walk up to a stranger and give them a bunch of red roses. They're going to wonder what's going on. It's not expected in, in society. And it's sometimes, you know, it could even upset people. In some cultures, you know, it's not, it's not right to do that because, you know, a bunch of red roses has some kind of meaning to it. Usually you give it to show love, affection and care and some people don't like for you to show them that because, you know, they already have someone else from whom they expect love, care and that kind of affection. So they don't expect you to do that. In fact, they expect you not to do that. So I'm not talking about it from their perspective. I'm talking about it from your perspective. Why would you do that to a loved one, a girlfriend, your girlfriend, and not do it to a, a stranger? Isn't there something you expect from your loved one? In fact, just think about, say you had a crush on someone and then you got into a, a relationship, you, have an, you, you started an affair with someone, right? Before you had the crush, before you got into, you started an affair with this person, they were just another person, weren't they? They were 
just another person, just like any other stranger, and you treated them just so. But something happened. Eyes met, right? And heart started beating faster, you know, that all the chemistry and all the emotions and, you know, a day later, two days later, a week later, you got into a relationship and now, you know, you're dating. Now you treat them differently to how you did before. Remember last week we talked about this. When someone, for someone to think that you care about them, you need to satisfy things that they expect of you. Yes or no? For someone to believe, to, for someone to expect and admit that you care about them, they'll have a list of things. They will have a list of things that they can tick off and say, yes, 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 you've done, he's done that, he's done that, he's done that, so yeah, he must care about me. Yes or no? Why am I taking an analytical view of this? Because we need to study things objectively. Because that is the truth. Once you unveil the, you know, the customs and how we are used to doing things, right? Once you, once you unveil that, you will begin to understand the real dynamics of relationships. This is simply for you to understand and comprehend. I don't expect you to change anything. Let me emphasize that. I don't expect you to and I don't want you to change anything about the way you live your life, your relationships with others and so on. That is not what I expect of you. I only expect you to understand, realize and comprehend what's going on. Outwardly, nothing must change. You must be the same husband, the same wife, the same boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, right? As you've always been. Because when you make that transformation externally and other people start to observe something's changing with you, then that is going to be a hell of a problem. You're asking for trouble when you start doing that. You don't need that. You know, we abide by customs. We live according to our customs and the norms that we have all agreed to in society. We live as per convention, but we understand, we realize, we understand, and we comprehend the truth. So the truth about everything is purely for comprehension. Conventional truths are there for us to live by, abide by, adhere to. This is what keeps society, the, the, the very fabric of society, is these customs and, and rituals and, and how we interact with each other, our relationships. You know, it's that. So I, I'm, it is not my intention to, to tear that fabric. That must remain. But on your quest to achieving unconditional happiness, which is not reliant on any of these factors, which is not dependent on someone else making you happy, I need you to understand what's really going on under the bonnet. So lift it up and have a look. Have now take an analytical view at it. Under the microscope, what's really going on? Because then it's a, it's a, it's a whole new ballgame. It's a very different picture to what seems on the outside. But please, I emphasize, the truth, the, the, the ultimate truth is purely for comprehension. It's for you to understand not to live by. 
not to change your behaviors, not to change your habits, not to change any behavioral patterns or anything like that. That's simply for your intellect, for your wisdom. Understand and then live a very normal life. I warn you, if you try and do the other, problems will happen. Bad things will happen for you. And I don't want that for you. I want you to be able to live a happy life. So, ask yourself, why is it that we have to satisfy these checklists that other people have for us? Because it is, that is how they gauge that we care about them. In that list will be the things that we need to do for them. In other words, things that make them happy. In other words, their vexations. In other words, their expectations. Isn't that so? So, for instance, you know, if, if, there are, if, if someone expects you to give them a card on Valentine's, or for their birthday, a gift on their birthday. That is what makes them happy. And if you do that, they can tick it off their list and go, yep, he cares about me. He loves me. When you put what love is on the surgical table and you cut it open, what you begin to understand, what you begin to realize is, it's simply a case of, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. When someone says, I know you love me, would they say that if, they, if the other person did nothing that makes this person happy? So would a girl ever say to a boy, I know, darling, that you love me, if, if there was nothing that the guy did for her that made her happy? If there was nothing that he did that would give her pleasure, would she ever say that? I mean, normal people, would they do that? Would they say that? No. Why? Because how much someone loves me is normally measured by how much someone helps me achieve pleasure. And if pleasure is based in vexation and expectation, in other words, what they're saying is, I have these vexations, I have these problems, these pains in my life, and if you help me relieve myself from these pains, these vexations, then I'll know that you love me. And the boy does the same. The guy does the same. So the guy has a list of things that he wants from a relationship. Right? So the guy will go, I want you to, say, maybe cook for me. I want you to wake me up in the morning. I, I want you to make me a, a, my tea. Or I want you to walk with me to the park. I want you to hold my hand. Not that one, the right, the other one. I want you to care about my parents. I need you to leave the toilet seat up. <laughs> Whatever. You do know, don't you, that relationships have broken down. Husbands and wives have gone their separate ways and divorced. Over a toilet seat? I'm not making this stuff up, right? This has happened. I had a couple head over heels in love with each other. They get married. They move in together. A week later they're divorced. Go and find out why. Apparently it's because they've had a disagreement on how the toilet seat 
had to be left after the other person used the toilet. In other words, there are things that make me happy and he ain't doing them. There are things that make me happy and she's not doing them. So I can no longer live with her because she doesn't love me, she doesn't care about me. If you were to make a list, I mean you can do this as an activity, as a piece of homework. Right? Make a list of what are some of the things that you expect from the people that you believe love you. Right? If it's your husband, your wife, your, your children, your parents. Right? Make a list of some of the things that your, your best friend. Right? Why do you think they love you? Why do you think they care about you? Hmm? Why do you think that? Honestly ask yourself, why do you think that? What, what, is, what evidence do you have that they care about you and that they love you? You'll be able to come up with a list of things which satisfy your needs. These are your vexations. These are your expectations. These are the things that make me happy. In other words, if someone else were to do the same, you'd be happy. Now, if you ask the other person in that relationship, why do you believe I make you happy? or that I care about you, they'll have a list of things that they expect of you. And it is this list, as many of these items on these two lists can be satisfied, this is a strong relationship. If only few of the items on those two lists can be satisfied, that's not a very good relationship, soon to be broken. No? Isn't that how relationships end? And isn't that how relationships are made? You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Once again, I emphasize the point that I'm not saying that people are evil or vicious or that, you know, what a terrible thing this is. You know, how, how you know, I always thought that if someone loves me truly and dearly and this is what, you know, that this is genuine and pure love. <laughs> my point is simply this. For you to understand, for you to achieve ultimate happiness, you need to begin to understand that expecting others to make you happy is never going to be the path to achieving ultimate happiness. Your happiness has to be independent, unreliant on other people doing anything whatsoever for you. In the same way, the same applies for others. So once you've made that list, now make another list. If you say that you love your husband, you say you love your father, you say you love your mother, your children, your wife. What evidence do you have to prove this? In a court of law, what evidence would you have to prove that you love them? You can say, well, it's just a feeling I have. Yeah, okay, it's a feeling you have. But ask them, how do they know that you love them? Because they don't know your feelings. No one knows your feelings. Only you know your feelings. You can express your feelings in words, but how do you know you're being truthful? How do they know you're being truthful? So the expression of feelings through words is, you know, there's no science behind that. There's no substance behind that. They know that you love them. You know, let's say you kept on going on about the fact that you love someone, yeah, I love you dearly, I love you head to toe, I love every bit of you, I care about, so much about you, and you, 
you know, you hug them, you, you, you know, you, you try and express your love in every possible way you know. But you don't do the things that they want, that they seek, that they treasure, that they seek pleasure from. Do you believe that that relationship is going to last very long? If what they want from you is a happy birthday wish or a card on, your, on their birthday, if what they want from you is a box of chocolates every other weekend, if what they want from you is for you to cook the dinner, at least, you know, every other day, or for you to do the dishes every day, or for you to sweep the house, do the chores, clean the house, right, once or twice a week, if those things don't happen, are you going to tell me that that relationship is going to last forever? Is that going to be a happy relationship? Oh no. No, you must, ad you must admit. So you see, my point is, although people talk about love, care, relationships, and you know, affection and all that, it is not pure in its purest form. It is not 100% pure. It's, it's good, it's not great. Because at the end of the day, you have these, 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 this affection is tainted with expectation. It's tarnished with the, the intention for self-preservation. It's all based in that. Only when someone else makes you happy will you make them happy. Because your happiness always comes first. That's why. Now this might be a tough pill to swallow. But if you take some time to think it through, I think you'll agree with me. Once you've understood this, so what next, you might ask? Do I just go hang myself, Bhante? Because it seems like I'm a terrible person. No, 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 no. That's not the answer. Because you can make love pure. You can purify love. You can transform your love, your affection, your care, your duty of care to its purest form. You can distill it. Remove all that, all that, all that impurities. Pure love is possible. But what is pure love based in? Pure love is based in zero attachment. No expectation for yourself. None whatsoever. Is that possible? Yes, of course it's possible. An arahant is someone like that. An arahant is just that. Someone who loves, who has pure love for all sentient beings. Because they have absolutely no expectations in return. Friends, relations, family, right? When you express your, as you say, the warmth of your heart, right? They have reasonable expectations from a loved one. You know, and we differentiate one living person or one human being from another because we expect things from one person and not from the other. Therefore, we, 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 we show more love, we show more care, we show more affection towards one person and more than the other. More for one, less for another, because we expect other things in return from them. It might not be material things, don't get me wrong, right? you don't feed your children expecting that they will feed you one day, might not be so, but at least seeing your children happy makes you happy. Does it not? That's why you care for them. That's why a mother feels differently about her child than she does another child. 
There may be some people who will disagree with me, but I'm talking about the majority. You love your child more than you love another child. That's why when someone wants a child, they make a child instead of go and adopt a child from an orphanage most of the time. Most of the time. I don't say all of the time. Why? Are they not children just the same? There's a child who needs a mother. You need a child. Well, there you go. There's a match. But no, it doesn't feel the same, does it? When a child is born out of your flesh and blood, you feel different. Why? It's because that's what makes you happy. Your child being happy. You can do the same for the other child. You can feed the child. You can, you know, you can breastfeed the child if you really wanted to. And you, know, you can give him a good education, bring him up and transform him to a, a law-abiding good citizen. But it doesn't feel the same. Why does it not feel the same? Because it doesn't tick your box. But who's an Arahant? An Arahant is someone who can love two children just the same. It may be that an Arahant, before becoming an Arahant, lives a lay life, has children. And this Arahant loved their, his or her children more than he or she did another child, someone else's child. But upon becoming an Arahant, he or she sees no difference between the two. He loves them both just the same. He fulfills his duty of care that is expected of society, you know, as a father, there may, be some there may be some duty of care. But of course, once he becomes a monk, then that duty of care changes because society expects a different kind of behavior, different expectations from, from monks than they do from lay people. So that's different. But if an arahant lived at home and he was the father of the child, then he would show every affection possible to that child, but he would be able to do it the same for any other child. He would feel the same, no difference. Not feel one thing, but do the same on the outside. No, he would feel the same. That's the difference I'm talking about. Is that possible? Of course it's possible. That is the path we are on, because we are on the path to achieving ultimate happiness. Happiness that is not dependent on factors, on external factors, on other people, on who they are and what they do. You know, it's the same thing we're talking about here. To an arahant, it matters not who the other person is, what they are, what they do. So it's possible. Because his happiness is not dependent on seeing someone else happy. But he will do what he can to make someone else happy. Not because in return he expects something from him, not even a smile, not even a thank you. He does not even expect that the other person has to be happy now that he has helped him to be happy. He'll just do what, may, what, what he knows what he's learned makes someone else happy. Whether that actually has a positive impact on the other person or not is not important to him. You know, this is a very subtle concept and it might be a little bit challenging and difficult for some to understand. I know some of you will, will just get it without a problem. But I'm saying, you know, I think there's lots in this question that we can even talk about another week, another couple of weeks. But I just wanted to highlight some of these ideas with you and to just you know, introduce some of these concepts because we are trying to understand someone who, is, you know, who we are not yet. 
You and I can one day understand who an arahant is, but you know, we need to get there first. It's like, you know, if, imagine a fish living in a pond all its life and a tortoise comes and asks, hey fish, you alright? The fish goes, yeah, where have you been, mate? Hadn't seen you for some time. Yeah, I was on land. You were where? On land? What's that? You know, land. Uh, everyone knows land, right? It's just on the other side of the water. La la what? Land? What's that? Uh, exactly. Try teaching a fish what land is. Because the fish has never been there. It doesn't know what land is. But one day, if somehow a fish were able to get out of the water, some kind of physical transformation, whatever, and get out of the water and experience land, then it'd know. It would know what land is all about. But until then, we need to understand who we are first before we begin to understand who an arahant is. The end goal is important. I don't deny. Right? I, I, I agree. It, it is important to understand what the end goal is like. But please understand that the end goal we can only appreciate to a certain extent at this moment in time. And to understand who an arahant is, for the time being, I suggest, uh, let's understand an arahant as being someone who is free of attachment, free of any expectation for self-preservation, free of any expectation for his own happiness from any of the things he does or he says to and with others. Because there's zero attachment. His happiness is already and always with him. He doesn't need to do anything to make himself happy. Therefore, he has no expectation of others or the world he lives in. The world can shower him with flowers or hit him with stones. Makes it no difference to his life doesn't take away a modicum of his mental happiness. It'll hurt him if you hit him with stones. It'll cut him just the same way it would cut you and I. That would be physically painful, but not mentally. It is unshakable. That is the kind of person an arahant is. They're human just like you and I. It's just a transformation in the way they think. Their mental approach to things is what's different. So are they like a robot? In some ways you could say, perhaps, once you begin to understand who you are, I think you will, you will realize that you and I have a lot more in common with robots than we think and than we like to admit. All this I'll explain to you as we go forwards on our journey. Right now you believe, oh, they are robots, they are artificial things, and we are human beings, right? We do what we want, we act in the ways we, we like, you know? We have our intentions, and, you know, but robots don't. They are just computer programs. As we go forwards, as we learn more and understand ourselves better, you'll begin to understand that we have a lot more in common with them. But that's all yet to come at some, way, some point. For today, we will conclude our talk there. I think we'll spend some more time talking about this particular question in a future talk. I'm not sure I've done in full justice to the question itself, but you know, we've got time. Time is all we have, time is what we don't have, right? But uh, provided you remain with us on this journey, 
that you come along with me on this journey. There's lots that we can discover together. There's lots we can learn about ourselves. And, you know, those questions are very important and, and they're useful, provided, of course, as I said earlier, they are related to your practice, to your achievement of ultimate bliss. If they simply become academic questions, just for the sake of curiosity, there's not really much point in asking them. But I've not yet come across a question like that. So, you know, always grateful for those questions. On that note, we will transfer the merits today and bring the talk to a close for this week. All right. So, let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all the other monks resident at this monastery, as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or engaging with others and invi inviting them to join them. And may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plain, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. And may to the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery to those of you who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes and also provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines. May to the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transmit to our mothers and fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us and supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. By the power of these mates, may they be healed of any physical men and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samudasasana. Let us also transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep, a, who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, and to all those who have been our families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara, and to those who've, 
who have helped us and have supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form they could. The resource transfer made to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations and may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the message that we have acquired today. There is also transformation to all those who have lost their lives in natural calamities, such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one, reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been our friends and family to us in this long journey in samsara. Let us take a moment to transformate to them, and may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may through the power and blessings of all mates we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may through the power of all the mates we have acquired today, you and I and everyone who has helped make this program a success, become an arahatun vahanse, an arahat teranin vahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to continuing our discussion next week. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all forever.